If you're interested in joining a community that could inspire and equip you even further as you're making your impact, consider joining Team Impact on my Patreon. If you join now at any of the subscription tiers available, you would be one of the very first members and you'd play a role in helping me build a truly supportive community for others who are seeking to make their impact. And if I do say so myself, every tier comes with fun additional benefits too. You can check it out for yourself at patreon.com slash Melissa Ike, which is spelled E-I-C-K. I hope to see you on Team Impact. Welcome to Making Your Impact, a podcast to inspire and equip you to pursue your calling and make your positive impact on the world. I'm your host, Melissa Ike. I have a passion for making an impact, and I also have a passion for helping you make yours. So let's get started. Welcome back to Making Your Impact. Thank you for being here. I'm so glad that you are. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Melissa Ike. I am a co-founder and the director of communications and development for a nonprofit, The Dragonfly Home, an anti-human trafficking activist, attorney, speaker, and writer. You can learn more about me at melissaike.com. That's Melissa. E-I-C-K dot com. In today's episode, we will hear part one of a conversation with one of my closest friends, Hannah Brammer. Hannah is one of the most extroverted, bubbly, and fun people I know, and I think you will gather that pretty quickly into this episode because I did leave in the part of our conversation before the official interview began, and you'll be able to see a glimpse into what most of our conversations are like. She's hilarious. Anyway, in this part of our conversation, Hannah will discuss the challenges of her eight-year stint in corporate America, where she strove to make an impact, but eventually that job became a threat to her physical and mental health. So then she'll also discuss the risk that she took in her career, where she made a huge pivot, and she's now making an impact in a lot of lives every single day in her new job. Finally, and if I'm allowed to have a favorite part, it's probably this. Hannah talks about working with refugee children from Eastern Africa and Southeast Asia and the impact that she's had the privilege to make in their lives and continues to make in their lives for a little over 10 years now through her church. I also just want to say that Hannah and I experienced numerous technical difficulties in recording this episode long distance. So we had to use a couple different types of apps, uh, find the best location that would work so that she could record using her data. So just expect that there are some sort of, you know, those sort of like synthy robotic sounds that you get sometimes. Every so often it's a little bit garbled or something, but I honestly, I'm kind of a noise stress person. And to me, it just kind of flows. It's not, doesn't make it so you can't understand what anybody is saying. But just so you know, the sound quality is a little bit different, but the quality of the conversation, unaffected. Still really good. So just bear with us for this episode. I will be back next week with an Instagram shout out, but I decided just to dive right into this conversation. So let's do it. Okay, are you ready for this? You're not. Hold on, I gotta. Ha! Ma! 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 Aluminum linoleum. 
Aluminum linoleum. The arsonist has oddly shaped feet. What else did they say? The human torch was denied a bank loan. Torch was denied. Unique New York. Unique New York. New York. Linoleum. Okay. The the ma ma is from uh, High School Musical. They do that. They're like really. The popular girl and her boy, her not her boyfriend, her brother that are like the drama stars. That's one of their warm ups. She goes, Ma, Ma. <laughs> is that Ashley Tisdale? It is Ashley Tisdale. I think that I saw that movie once. You know, for what it is, it's actually pretty entertaining. You know, it was a Disney Channel original movie. Yeah, it's not. And it, and it launched Zach Afron's career. It launched Zach. Do you still have a crush on Zac Efron? More now than ever. Have you seen him lately? Uh, he's amazing. <laughs> have you seen The Greatest Showman? Oh, that's right. I have. We went and saw it on Christmas Day. Yes. He was quite attractive in that. It's true. Yeah. He looks like a full-on adult now, so it's less creepy. <laughs> but, like, I have to remind people, when, like, he's basically my age. Yeah. So when I had a crush on him, it wasn't creepy. I was no, also young. Yeah. Zach and I are just growing up together. You are. <laughs> oh, but in this journey of life, you and Zach have yeah. really, you know. I think I think that would make a great podcast, Growing Up with Zach Efron. Yeah. <laughs> About a girl who loves Zach Efron, has never met uh, him. <laughs> go, I think you should do it, Growing Up with Zach Efron. You know you get a following. I you know, will. right? Um, okay. Hannah Brammer, you are actually sitting outside of your place of work right now. Like a real creeper. Yep. People are walking by right now looking at me actually as we speak. <laughs> Just chilling in your backseat. In the backseat of my car. Oh, that's funny. I expect that someone pretty soon a cop's going to pull up and they're gonna be like, ma'am, we got reports of someone loitering outside of this gym. You're going to be like, I'm the manager of this place. <laughs> I have a key. It's not loitering. Right. Um, even worse is that I originally moved my car over because I thought a different spot would be shady. And then it wasn't. So then I moved to another spot. So I've also been sitting in the parking lot and I've moved my car four times <laughs> back and forth between us and the fairway across the street. So, yeah, I probably do look suspicious. <laughs> you look straight up suspicious. And then I climbed in the backseat. So, sitting <laughs> there hanging out. <laughs> Just recording oh. a podcast. Right. Like one does. Okay. You had a different job prior to this. And even though I never like went to your place of business, I feel like I knew it well because we talked about it a lot. Yeah. I'll not be named, but... You started out like for years, your first job, you had a super high stress position in corporate America. Yeah. I mean, it started out not high stress. In fact, like, you know, me and my friends laugh about the good old days when we all started there right out of college, customer service, you know, kind of your traditional entry level job for someone, you know, we were all like business majors, finance majors, and when I graduated college, the job market was was really bad. It wasn't that long after 2008 when the market had crashed and you just really couldn't get a job if you weren't willing to start in customer service. Um, 
And so then it was great. It was kind of carefree. And as I moved my way up in the company, which, you know, I, I, that had always been my goal to, to move my way up. Um, it just became increasingly and increasingly more and more stressful, the more responsibility I ended up, um, being a manager and yeah, I won't name the name of the company, but a a very large, well-known insurance company. Um, I live in Des Moines, Iowa, which is kind of the insurance capital of the world. A lot of insurance companies have their headquarters here. So a lot of young professionals get their start in the insurance world. It, It was a combination of ill management, you know, money issues at the company, poorly executed plans, lots of turnover, things like that. And it got to the point where it, it was really impacting, I think, my emotional health, my, um, my physical health, my mental health, you know, just being so stressed out. Well, I think that your, your experience is probably really similar to a lot of other people working. Yeah. In you had a lot of positive times there as well. You're not like bagging on this company, even though you're not naming them. I mean, that's just what the experience is, I think, right? I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And and I'm very grateful for what I learned there. Um, You know, I had the boss that I had that kind of was the one that led me through my promotion ladder. I started, you know, with her as an associate, moved up to a lead. She promoted me to supervisor, manager. Um, She was an amazing boss and mentor for me. I think it's really important for young women to be able to see other strong women in leadership roles because the the stereotypes are true you know it's a boys club it's a man's world in a lot of companies even I would say more progressive ones you still have that stereotypical issue where if you are a strong assertive female in a role a management role or you know some sort of leadership role if you are can I curse a hard ass you know, yes, you're going to be, you're going to be perceived as, you know, a biznatch, as I like to say, someone that, you know, and, and whether you intend to or not, whether people even realize they're playing into that stereotype, they do. I mean, I had situations where I had people tell their managers they didn't want to work on my team because I was mean or, you know, for whatever reason, but it was because I was kind of no nonsense in a lot of ways when it came to the rules and and I expected people to perform at a certain level. And I expected that if they made mistakes, they were going to be okay being coached and being corrected because that's how you run a well-oiled ship. And I, I like to think that the people that worked on my team loved me, you know, had a very great team that I led. Um, but it, it, you know, I learned a lot, I guess is what I'm trying to say from my boss, because she taught me that it's okay to be that strong voice. And sometimes it just doesn't matter how people are going to perceive you. Mm -hmm. Just do your job well, know that, you know, you can command their, their attention and and that authority. So I definitely learned a lot there and and I don't regret working there, but you're right in terms of it being a stereotypical or, or a common experience. I think a lot of people, when you work in corporate America, when you get up high enough, you really realize they don't care about people at a lot of companies. And I think that was the hardest part for me that I myself felt like I was burnt out. I felt like my boss cared about me, but beyond that, no one did. And the things that 
you know, I had to deliver as a boss to my employees, it was hard because I cared about them. But the message was, hey, you have to do this. Who cares if you don't have a life? Who cares if you're stressed? Who cares if you're underpaid? The bottom Mm -hmm. line's got to be met. And obviously that's, you know, to a certain extent, that's business. But there was really just a lack of empathy and a lack of, you know, just caring about people. And, And that really wears on a person after a while. Well, and what I remember from those years that you were there and talking with you was, um, you know, when you say that you expected people to perform, the thing is that you expected yourself to perform as well. You worked long hours, well, late at night, getting up early in the morning, working on the weekends. If your team had, if the people on your team had an emergency or couldn't make it, you were super gracious with them. You worked with them and then you would help pick up the slack. So if they had like a medical issue or something with their kids, like you are gracious. And I remember just like stories that you would tell me about how they were with you. And I think it's true. There was the people on your team were the ones who could handle a strong woman and probably never gave it another thought. Right. Most of them. (laughs) Most of them. Right, 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 right. Um, But like you took responsibility for your work and you took responsibility for your team. And then what I remember as well, though, is like the expectations placed upon you and your team were like, were like required you to be like superhuman. Um, They were, right. you know, I had a lot of favor at that job and and I did work hard. Um, I think we'll probably talk about the four tendencies and your friend Gretch in a little bit, but um, (laughs) looking back at it, you know, I'm I'm definitely an obliger, which makes it very easy for me to kind of throw myself into Mm. my work because I, I really strive to meet external expectations that are put on me. And so you're talking about when I managed, I really was, it was hard for me to step back if my team was struggling, because ultimately as a manager, you know, your team's performance is your performance as a manager. If they, if you can lead your team to meet certain numbers, then you are, are meeting the numbers that you're supposed to be meeting as a manager and, and what you are graded on, so to speak. So it was really hard for me to watch them struggle, you know, working in a customer service world. For those of you out there listening, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. I led a team when I when I eventually started supervising and then later managing, I led a team that did support work. But if you've ever worked in a call center, you well know that support jobs get pushed to the side if the phones need help. And all of my people that worked on my support team were former customer service representatives. So it was a constant battle where they had their own work to do, but they were getting pulled to help on the phones because like I said before, lots of things were ill-managed. There were staffing issues. There was, you know, money issues where they didn't want to pay to hire more people. There were unrealistic expectations set on every level. So if the CSAs couldn't meet their expectations, you know, they just grabbed anyone and everyone that they could find that was semi-qualified to help take phone calls and what happens then is, you know, you can't rob Peter to pay Paul, but that's exactly what they were trying to do. And so I would see my team suffer and their work go undone and just get backlogged, which ultimately impacts the same customers they're trying to help on the phone. Um, and it creates this vicious cycle. But yeah, I was the type of person who 
I couldn't just really stand by. And so I would work myself to death, essentially, just I'd be there till two in the morning helping them get their work done behind the scenes because it had to be done and somebody had to do it. And I wasn't really willing to let it get to the point where, you know, something totally gave um, by just, you know, letting it all pile up. Um, and then at the same time, you know, it was kind of a morale thing. I think as a leader, it's important to be able to lead them to do their job. But I, I think sometimes, um, in like the spirit of Leslie, Nope, sometimes you got to get your feet dirty as well, get your hands dirty and, and jump in there and lead by action as well. But it, it did become a very stressful situation because then on top of all of that, I had my own duties as manager to perform and, and it got to the point where, just expectations on everyone all around were unrealistic. There would be nights where I would come home and I would box you and, and I would just ask you to believe with me that, you know, my team needs to get caught up. I need a miracle here because, you know, we're, we're behind, we're in trouble. People are angry. Customers are angry. You know, leadership's going to get angry. And it would be like, you know, just a testament to God's faithfulness that all of a sudden this grand, great big pile of work would somehow get done, um, in a time that you, you know, otherwise we were struggling to finish it in. Right. So, I mean, you were there for a long time then. I mean, that was years and years. I quit just a couple of months before my eighth year anniversary there. I remember talking with you about the opportunities to take a completely different job. Although a lot of those skills have really transferred over to your new job especially with your recent promotion, but we'll get to that. <laughs> and so you had the opportunity, your brother in Des Moines um, founded and operates and is continually expanding uh, a local gym there, Elite Edge. Yeah, for the city. For the city. <laughs> yeah, so you work at Elite Edge, the south side of Des Moines. Back to my roots. Back to your roots. <laughs> and so tell me, okay, well, I remember you struggling with that job because you're like, on the one hand, like a lot of the things, like just being overall healthier is like built into your job there. And so that was a draw for you. Um, although like you were going to take a pay decrease and also you had like what, three or four weeks of vacation built up at your prior job, right? Yeah, it was really, you know, I think it's important, like, you know, obviously your podcast is all about making your impact and you think about what do you really want to be doing in your life? And I never would have thought I want to be working at a gym. But mm -hmm. I also, when I take a look back at that time, you know, I was right where I thought I should be in terms of I, I you know, graduated from high school. I graduated from college early. I had an economics degree and a business degree. And I was on the path that, you know, on paper I should have been on. And maybe not with the right company. You know, not everyone in, in corporate America has the exact same experience. I think there are companies that care more about their employees. But at some point, you have to take a look and think, like, am I happy? And mm -hmm. you're right. I hit that wall. Um, and, and it was God, really, I think, because out of the blue, unprompted by anything, mm -hmm. my yeah. brother reached out and said, hey, I have this position I need to fill. And I said... At first I said, well, you pay me. And he told me and I said, nope, no way. Thanks. Right. No, thanks. Because, you know, I might've been stressed, but I was making good money. Yeah. Um, 
and I had five weeks of paid vacation. I had very nice benefits. I had a 401k, you know, I was taken care of in a lot of senses. Um, but I was emotionally, mentally, and physically unhealthy. And so a couple weeks after that, it kind of got to the point, you know, and it had been in the back of my mind and I just kept justifying to myself, no, you, you did the right thing. You told him, no, you can't take that kind of pay cut. You can't live on that mm-hmm. little money, right? I've got a mortgage to pay. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I kind of hit a wall at work. I hit a breaking point and I remember at work texting him and was like, you know what? Do you still have that position open? And he was like, yeah. And he was like, let me think about what we can do, like pay-wise. You know, he's a business owner. He understands. Um, And he came back, and I like to say he made me an offer I couldn't refuse, as corny (laughs) as that sounds. You know, but it did mean a a substantial pay cut for me. It did mean a substantial cut in my, my vacation time. I went from five weeks paid vacation to one week paid vacation. But at the end of the day, what it meant is that, honestly, I don't even feel like I need that vacation anymore. When I worked that incredibly stressful job, it was like I needed that time off or I was going to burst, right? I needed that sick time and that vacation time to just get away. Whereas now, I don't feel that kind of pressure. Every job has its little stressful points, don't get me wrong, but I feel like I, I can breathe, you know, I don't feel like I have to escape, um, just to get a little bit of a reprieve. So it it ended up being a big change. It's very different going from working in an office setting, um, to working at a gym, you know, with trainers, but like you said, a lot of my skills have translated and what it's helped me with the most is just analyzing my health from a different perspective. I think at that time when I was in that incredibly stressful position, I don't think I would have sat across from someone and said, I think my mental health is suffering and my emotional health is suffering. But now when I can look back at it, it absolutely was. Mm -hmm. I would lay in bed. I never had problems with anxiety until then. I would lay in bed and think, I can't do this. I, I I can't go to work today. Like it was, it was to that point. And, um, so what this position has allowed me to do is just focus, you know, on getting healthy. I work out every day. Now I work in a place where I've got access to nutrition information, um, and people that are like-minded and, and motivating each other. And mm-hmm. I'm much, much happier for it. So it was a big change, but definitely a healthy change. Well, I want to talk a little bit now, the way that I would perceive your impact at your prior job is just like in this corporation where you are managing people and they too were working for a company that wasn't particularly concerned with them. They at least had you as the buffer. So I remember you telling me stories about someone, you know, they call you at like 530 or six in the morning and like, their child had an illness and they had to, you know, go somewhere or people who had to have surgery and take off for a while. And you can imagine that with a different manager, those people would have felt way more pressure or they wouldn't have been able to take care of their kids. They wouldn't have been able to, you know, do those things because you were taking the brunt of the stress. So, I mean, I think that one thing that I want to talk about a lot on this podcast is, you know, no matter where we are, 
we can we can have that positive impact for people. But now the people that transferring into this job, I don't even know, like you're saying, if you would have expected um, that you would be kind of like a full-time cheerleader for a <laughs> lot of people. And yeah. a lot of people like, I'll have you like explain what Elite Edge, it's not like a 10 gym. It's not like Planet Fitness. It's a whole program you guys do there. But right. for a lot of people, they've walked into the gym. They're trying something really new, pretty intense, and would be easily Im intimidated um, walking in there. And so you provide, you help create an atmosphere where people are welcome and they can feel safe. Um, trying to achieve their goals. And so you're impacting way more people. I mean, you tell me stories like when you are, when you're like working out with people and they're like, I can't do this. They're able to, because you're able to step in and be like, you can, I did it. You can do it. Right. And, and so I feel like that, that too has to really feed into job satisfaction. Oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's rewarding you know, I feel like I've always been a people person, no matter where I was. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's very rewarding to be able to share my experience with people. Um, you know, when I started at the gym, I was incredibly overweight. I started by doing the program that a lot of people that you're talking about, a lot of people come in and do this program with us. And I lost a, a bunch of weight right off the bat doing this program. And it's, it's inspiring to also see just other people come in and, and achieve their goals and they're not all weight loss goals. You know, sometimes mm -hmm. it's, they want to be able to lift a certain amount of weight and it's inspiring to be able to see people hit their goals. Hopefully that doesn't sound cliche. I know there are too many people, there are much more important goals out there than the goals you hit in the gym. But for mm -hmm. some people it is life or death as well. We have people that I have a, a girl who she was misdiagnosed with a rare disease and couldn't walk for like 18 years almost. And she finally got um, correctly diagnosed and she can walk now. And it's this huge and important and epic thing for her to be able to work out, to be able to walk, let alone come and work out and, and now focus on her health in a different way again. So it's inspiring mm -hmm. to just see people reach for those things. And it's, it's so rewarding to be able, like you said, to almost be their cheerleader on the sideline and, and just rooting for them and helping them along the way on their journeys. And I think well, something that I've mentioned on other episodes, I mean, yeah, I get it. You're like, Oh, how important of a goal is it? Like I want to lift. I don't even know what a realistic weight is. You're lifting, you're squatting like hundreds of pounds of weight right now. Right. What was your, what's your person? What's your PR? My, <laughs> my last PR was um, two reps of 245 pounds. That's crazy business. What, what? But I mean, I think that all of those goals, I mean, it's just like you're saying, right? When you were working at that other job, you or just no matter what, like if there's something that's important to us, any goal is important, right? Yeah, because sure. not the only one that we have and maybe like achieving this goal in this area empowers us to feel like we can achieve a goal in a different area. Um, so I think it's all super important. And I think, also just the atmosphere that you that is like the culture for elite edge across the board like a safe positive place it's also I know that you have a lot of people who like they come to the they come to their class they come to the gym and it's like their happy place for the week or 
a way that they can feel about themselves. Like, yeah, absolutely. And you meet all kinds, you know, you meet people that it, it literally has changed their life to be able to work out or to lose weight. And you meet people or maybe it's their form of self care. You know, I know, um, several weeks ago you, you talk and you kind of ongoingly talk about self care for some people. It's not even about setting a goal to necessarily achieve, you know, a number on a scale or a weight, but it's their form of self-care. It's their form of release and taking care of themselves. Um, For some people, it's, I want to set a good example for my children because they're surrounded by unhealthy examples in their life. So I think you're so right that it, it can be a catalyst to other things in their life. And any goal that you set for, for yourself that you're working towards, I think is admirable, no matter how big or, or how little. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, I'm going to switch gears here for y'all listeners. I met Hannah in April 2001. I went to your dad's church. And so then over the years, I got to know you that way. And you have for a long time worked with kids. Yes. Yeah, so I have probably been doing childcare at church in some way or the other, probably since I was like 12 years old. And it started like every good 12 year old church going girl in the nursery. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I started out um, as a nursery helper. um, And then from there kind of have worked with every age group, I would say, except like older teenagers. There are a lot of kids I have witnessed and I haven't been living there for 11 years now. But even when I was there, a lot of kids like church was their safe place. Like they really were drawn to your parents who were the pastors, you know, like they had positive people there who would just show them unconditional love. Kids who were in hard home situations, but like this was a place where they could just go and like get a meal and be loved and laugh and play and have fun and feel safe. And so now like, now some of them are adults and they're still going there. They're like in a positive place in life. Um, but you and I were actually specifically talking about like probably, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, suddenly like Iowa takes in a lot of refugees um, from other countries. And so there was an influx, like for example, in the nineties, Iowa took in a lot of Bosnian refugees. I remember cause I was going to high school with kids who came in yeah. Bosnia, and they were just like suddenly sitting next to me in class. I, at the time, I couldn't have appreciated what they would have been going through, but that's hard. And, um, and then they took, I was taking like Sudanese refugees, but Rock Power saw an influx of refugees from like Eritrea, Djibouti, which is close to Somalia. It's like um, East, Northeastern Africa, and then a bunch of kids from Nepal by India who'd like experienced civil war and refugee camps and probably had came with so much trauma and then suddenly they're in Iowa and they've rock power. Like just you guys implemented programs to help these kids. Yeah. I mean, literally children that, you know, a lot of them are very young, but the older ones would tell me stories about, you know, I mean, they literally lived in tents with, no running water, no plumbing. I mean, things that you just so much take for granted. Um, A lot of them, like you said, Eritrean, they're the Kunama tribe, which really doesn't have its own country. 
they were kind of scattered between Ethiopia and Eritrea. Um, and, and, you know, Des Moines or Iowa in general has been taking in still a lot of refugees from that area. Um, and yeah, I remember, you know, it, it started with one guy at our church, I think, bringing, I think he was just witnessing on the street and he ran into um, uh, a Nepali couple and their family started coming and, you know, they lived in um, kind of the projects, if you will, if, if you want to call it that. And so a lot of the refugee families lived there. And so those kids started bringing um, some of the Kunama kids that mm-hmm. lived there. And it was like, suddenly we just <laughs> were overrun with children right. and overrun with children. And traditionally, you know, growing up in the church, the kids, you know, that I grew up with in Sunday school and the kids that I had taught in Sunday school and the nursery were always, you know, people, children that their families came to church and, and they brought their children and sent them to Sunday school. But now we had all these children and no parents were coming with them. And mm. we had to establish a busing system. We had to really rely on people in our church to just donate their time to get up early and go all over town. You know, a lot of them don't live anywhere near the neighborhood that our church is in even. Um, so we drive around town. We have three or four buses over the year. I mean, we had an actual school bus at one point. Now we use mm-hmm. vans um, that drive around town and, and bus them in. And I remember um, at the time when they all first started coming, we had we didn't have children's classes during our praise and worship at church. So our church is kind of divided into two segments, if you will. We call first and second hour. First hour is, is praise and worship. Second hour is the sermon. And we always had childcare and Sunday school in the second hour. Um, but suddenly we had all these children and they were sitting in praise and worship and a lot of them <laughs> didn't speak English. And mm-hmm. so they didn't really know what songs we were singing. And, and there's a big cultural difference. I remember my mom coming to me and her saying, hey, we've got to do something with these kids. I can't, you know, 20 kids sitting here during praise and worship. We've got to have something for them to do and, and help them really. So her and I started um, alternating during praise and worship on those Sunday mornings. And I mean, I would have 30 kids sometimes and it just, it makes your, your heart swell. If you really have a a heart for children, Mm -hmm. um, which I've, I always have, I've always worked with children in some capacity over the years, volunteering or for a while I worked as a camp counselor. Um, it, It just made my heart swell to see all these sweet little children coming to church and amongst the chaos, and it was chaos because I, you know, <laughs> I you don't know their names and you're trying, you know, they don't know English and they're trying to tell you their names and spell their names, but they don't spell their names, you know, with a traditional English in the English language sometimes. And so you've got three different kids telling you three different spellings for this <laughs> other kid's name. And then they also all had more Americanized names and they had their Kunama names. So you hear them calling each other different names. And I remember for months, I was calling this kid um, a particular name. And then I heard kids calling him a different name. And I thought, oh my gosh, I've been calling this poor kid the wrong name. And they were like, no, Miss Hannah, they're both his name. And I'm like, (laughs) okay, I'm definitely not on the same page, but whatever. (laughs) We didn't know who, you know, who, who do you belong to? You know, who's your sister? Who's your brother? Who's your cousin? And Somehow, you know, when you just 
you can put all of that aside and you just realize like, Hey, I'm just here to help these kids, to show them love. A lot of them do come from very, you know, they live in rough neighborhoods. I mean, neighborhoods and complexes where people get shot on a regular basis. You know, Des Moines is not what you think of as inner city necessarily, but there are some very rough neighborhoods. Um, and those kids are in the heart of some of them. And, you know, a lot of their parents might be single parents. A lot of their parents work overnights. You know, they struggle to get jobs when they come to this country. Um, and so sometimes they just need guidance. They just need an adult in their life that they can trust and come to and just someone to love them, you know, and to be kind to them. Uh, I remember a lot of them couldn't read a lot of them, you know, even going through school, they really struggled. Um, so we tried to start focusing on, you know, reading the Bible together and, and using that, obviously not as just a tool to learn about God, but to learn basic skills as well, to learn to read. And I remember my mom staying late at church for a while, tutoring a girl to help her with her reading. And it was really just about, you know, these children have been, you know, have, have crossed our paths and, you know, we have to do something to make the best of it and to really, you know, be an example to these kids because that's what we've been called to be. We've been called to be Christ on this earth. And um, I'm like tearing up thinking about these, these children and watching some of them grow now. Like you said, some of them are adults, some of them are college students. And I, I remember those first days where they came and didn't speak English or one of them spoke English speaking for all of them. And it's just amazing to see them grow and, and some of them, you know, be able to withstand the pressures, you know, they, they go to American schools and they're suddenly introduced to things that they have never been introduced to before. pressures, peer pressures that they've never been introduced to before. And it's tough. And just to, to be able to be a light to those kids is, is really something I'm proud of. And it's a responsibility that I hope, we've met well and, and really taken seriously. Well, what made me think of it was I was, you know, visiting Iowa just last, just one week ago today. Yeah, last and, week. Uh, I saw these, these two young men go up and talk to your dad. I didn't recognize them, but they walked up with huge smiles on their faces. Like, and your dad, you could, I was watching from afar, but they were like having this great conversation. And I was like, I wonder if these are kids that used to come here. And then you told me the names of those boys and they're like college students now. And when they were back in Des Moines, like they came back to rock power so that they could see everyone and go and talk to your dad. And that's so moving. But because also rock power, especially, I don't know how much you could do it now, but it used to have third hour Third right. hour fellowship, which was food, which was lunch, and can all sit down in the basement and have a grand old time. I mean, it has to be the case that for some of those kids, that was like a primary meal for the Absolutely. day. Absolutely. Yeah, we still provide them breakfast. I mean, maybe it's not the healthiest, but every Sunday morning, my dad goes to Casey's and he gets donuts for all yeah. of these kids. Um, you know, we make sure we've changed our programming really to, to meet that on Wednesday nights. We totally mm -hmm. switched our Wednesday night church um, where we used to have a sermon for adults on Wednesdays. It's just literally kids night basically. And mm -hmm. before and after they've got snacks and you know, a lot of them, you know, my dad has a real heart for children as well. 
Um, and I'll see him. It's so funny. We have like a little pantry in the back by the kitchen at our church. And you see the little kids come through and ask, Pastor Ron, can I keep this? Can I take this? And he gets them, you know, little grocery bags and they take home, you know, it's, it's a pantry for the church. Those are things that we would cook, you know, and, and provide at some point. But, you know, he puts them in little bags and he sends them home with canned goods and, and things like that. And I mean, some of those boys, my dad taught them how to drive. My parents wow. took them to the DOT to get their licenses. You know, my, my parents really played a central role for a lot of those kids um, in the very formative years. And I think, you know, that's a labor of love on their part. They really, you know, love those children and have a heart for them. And when I see them doing well now, a lot of them use my parents as references when they get jobs. Um, so it's just very sweet to see kind of that relationship as it grows. Uh, they all love, love Pastor Brammer and Miss Colette is what they call him. <laughs> Well, and I also, it occurred to me, I want to point out, Rock Power is a small church. We're it not is. talking about like a church that's got hundreds of people who can like support this and like some, some like bigger building. It's just your parents running it. There's no other church staff. It's all volunteers. A lot of people who have been there for decades, mm -hmm. people who have been dedicated for that long. It's not a huge congregation on a Sunday, but this small church made the decision, your parents made the decision that this is what you guys are going to do. And you've seen a lot of people step up. I mean, for a church this small to establish a busing program that goes all over and picks up kids and then like gets food. It's a testimony to God's provision as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, make sure that these kids are taken care of through this small place. Um, I think that's so cool. Yeah, it, it really is. And, you know, I mean, on Wednesday night, sometimes we have more kids on Wednesdays than we have adults on Sundays, which is sad, mm -hmm. but also cool that we have that many children. That right. Come. And even now, I mean, there's still always new refugee families coming. It's easier for them to get established if they have family in the area. So, you know, any given week, you'll have new kids coming still with their cousins or their siblings. Um, so it, it's still growing. I'm going to go ahead and pause our conversation here. We will hear the second half next week. It's always so much fun to hang out with Hannah, and I hope that you felt that way too. Uh, next week, we'll be back with a feature, but for now, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up our episode with our question of the ep. So here it is. Have you ever made some kind of pivot, however big or small, in your career in an effort to protect your physical, mental, and or emotional health? And if so, what was it? I think it's beneficial for people to hear those kinds of steps that others have taken because it might just inspire them to make their own change. You can leave your answer to this question in the post for this episode, episode 15 on the podcast Instagram at Making Your Impact. Of course, if you have thoughts or questions or something you'd like to hear more about on the podcast, you can email me at hello at melissaike.com or leave a voice message by clicking the link in the show description. You can also follow me personally on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn by searching Melissa Ike, E-I-C-K. On the next episode, we'll finish up our conversation with Hannah, where if you can believe it, and of course you can, if you've heard any other episode of the show, Hannah and I will discuss Gretchen Rubin and her Four Tendencies Framework and how that has, in the last few months, 
helped Hannah in making her impact. As always, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. Please subscribe to get inspired and remember that the world needs you to make your impact.